In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, it fell to him by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of, of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he shall drink no wine nor strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things come to pass, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was on December the 24th, 1865, Philip Brooks was on the other side of the world in the Holy Land. For the last four years, he had been the pastor at the Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia. It had been such a difficult time. You remember that was the Civil War. Everyone in that family, everyone in that congregation had been touched by, by death, by grief. Every week, more and more women were wearing black, having lost a husband, a father, a brother, a son. It was such a hard time to try to keep people's spirits up, to stay strong, to have hope. They had moved through these very difficult four years, and then they were coming towards the end of the war. It was obvious the end was in sight. And people at least begin to feel a little lifting of the darkness. And then Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. He had loved his president. The country turned to Philip Brooks to bring the funeral sermon. And he dug deep to find the spiritual strength and the insight to try to comfort a nation. And he preached the funeral service. But when he was done with that funeral, he was done. Physically emotionally, spiritually. He was in his own, his own crisis of faith. 
He needed to take a sabbatical. He took a break and he decided to travel to the Holy Land. He was there in the Holy Land with these other pilgrims when it came to December the 24th. And he decided he wanted to spend that in Bethlehem. Now everybody started saying to him, you can't go down there to Bethlehem. You have to be careful of the bandits, the thieves. It's a dangerous journey. He wanted to go and go alone. He borrowed a horse and he rode to Bethlehem. I can just see him as you get near. You sort of come up over a hill. It's a desert area. Nothing but rocks. There are no trees. You kind of come up over this hill. And I can see him sitting there on that horse looking over Bethlehem. Bethlehem is 3,000 years old. There is so much history. He looked over Bethlehem. It was late now in the afternoon. He rode into town and he began to walk these streets. There was a worship service that night. The worship service started at 10 p.m. and it went until 3 a.m. Now that's a Christmas Eve candlelight service. (laughs) It started at 10 and it ran until 3. But finally it was over and he began to walk the streets. Again, there was no electric lights and things. I mean, it is just dark. You're out in the desert. And the stars were shining so brightly above. And Philip Brooks says that was one of those moments when he felt the presence of God renew his heart. It's like he put a song in his soul. It's exactly what he was needing, that refreshing of his spirit. It so touched him. He would ultimately come back home. He would continue to pastor Holy Trinity for a while And then he would be called to Trinity Church in Boston. He would be one of the great pastors in America in our history. But when he came back home from his experience there in Bethlehem, he was trying to tell everybody, put it into words, here's what I experienced, here's what I felt. You know how hard that can sometimes be. And he couldn't really get it out. He couldn't express what he was trying to say. It was three years later, 18... 68, he was again coming towards Christmas Day when he was still trying to find a way to put into words what he had experienced and he felt inspired and he sat down and he wrote a poem. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in the dark street shineth an everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. To know what it means to be in a dark night and to be able to have the hopes and the fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. What I want us to do as we start this Advent season is I want us to be focusing on what does it mean for you and I to confront our fears and to find hope because a baby is born in Bethlehem. I know that we all struggle with fears. Sometimes it's fears because of finances. It might be fears because of health. It can be fears because of relationships. It can be fears because it's the unknown future. 
We don't know how to control what's going to be happening. We're afraid of what may be happening. We all struggle with fear. You know, when I started working on this sermon series, I went back and I read the first two chapters in Matthew and the first two chapters in Luke. That's where you find the birth stories of Jesus. First two in Matthew, first two in Luke. I read through them and kept track. And what I found was in those four short chapters, the subject of fear is confronted ten times. Ten times in just four chapters. The story of Jesus' birth. The story of Jesus' birth really is about us figuring out how to confront our fears and find hope because a baby is born in Bethlehem. That's what I want us to look at. You know, this past September, we took our Reformation trip to Germany to learn all about Martin Luther and the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. But I told you how we also went to England. We went to England so we could study about King Henry VIII and the English Reformation. And of course, John Wesley in the 1700s in the founding of the Methodist Church. But you can't go to London and be in England without also talking about World War II. And being there and hearing so much about World War II, I cannot imagine the fear that these people had to deal with. We're on one day when we're taking our tour and, and a number of us went to the driver and to our, uh, our guide and said, we'd love to go out of the way and stop at Churchill's grave. And so we drove to where Winston Churchill was buried. What an amazing man. We visited with some of the people who had actually been alive during that time. And they talked about 1940 and how, how dark it was every night. You had to turn out all the lights. And you didn't know when the Germans would come and the bombs would fall. Literally just destroying all of their buildings and their homes. They lived with such fear. To try to stay strong. It was Churchill who tried to to encourage them in the darkest of nights. And then December the 7th, 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. And suddenly the United States was drawn into the war. Most people did not know that it was Churchill who made a secret trip to come to the United States at Christmas in 1941. To talk to FDR about how we were going to coordinate now with the war. Because suddenly America was having to feel so dark. What would the future hold? How would we deal with this? Everyone was struggling. Churchill was here and it was on Christmas Eve that the tradition was at that time, that's when you flip the lights on the Christmas tree there in Washington. It would be on Christmas Eve. And as Churchill was preparing to flip the lights on the Christmas tree for this wonderful season... He addressed the nation. And I want to read you what FDR said. There are many men and women in America, sincere, faithful men and women, who are asking themselves tonight about Christmas and how can we light our trees? How can we give our gifts? How can we meet and worship with love and uplifted spirits in our heart in a world of war, a world of fighting and suffering and death? Even as we ask these questions, we know the answer. There is another preparation demanded of this nation beyond and beside the preparations of war. There is a demand also of us, the preparation of our hearts. 
to prepare our hearts even when you face a dark night and there is so much fear. Advent is going to be a time that we prepare our hearts so that we can confront our fears and find hope because of a baby born in Bethlehem. It's why I chose to start with our scripture lesson this morning. The story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. It's such a wonderful story in the beginning of Luke. It's the story of Zechariah and how Zechariah, well, he and Elizabeth were descendants of Aaron. That meant they could act, he could actually serve as a priest in the temple. And every year at special times, they would throw dice, cast lots, and someone would be chosen to get to go burn incense in the holiest of holies. And one year it fell on Zechariah. It may never land on you your whole life. And he got to go inside to pray, to pray and to burn this incense. Now, Zechariah was up in age. He and Elizabeth, they were wonderful people, faithful people. But they never had any children. And in that day, if you were a good Jewish family, you had children. That was your calling, to populate the earth, to have children. And if you didn't have children, well, it was a sign you must have done something wrong or you were bad God wasn't happy with you. And in those days, there was no security. Who would take care of you in your old age? Knowing they were now facing older age, they wondered, are we loved by God? He is there at the altar and he is praying when suddenly an angel appears at the right of the altar. And it says when Zechariah saw him, he was filled with fear. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard. What a wonderful message. My prayer and my hope and my belief is that this year, as you and I go through Advent and we confront our fears, the angel will speak to you and to me and say, Don't be afraid. For your prayer is heard. It's exactly what happened to George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. I want to start a sermon series this morning for the season of Advent entitled It's a Wonderful Life. And I wanted to use some of this movie because, you know, it was just 10 years ago that the American Film Institute voted that It's a Wonderful Life is the number one inspirational movie of all time. Isn't that amazing? It was voted the number one inspirational movie of all time. It's a fascinating story. I mean, it came out in 1946. And when it came out in 1946, well, it came out to a lot of critical acclaim. It was nominated for five Academy Awards. It won zero. In the end, at the box office, well... People came, it made enough money to break even, but it didn't make money. And after it had its run at the theaters, it just kind of drifted away. You might never have heard of the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, if it hadn't been for a mistake by a clerk working at the movie studio in 1974. Because you see, this clerk in 1974 forgot to renew the copyright on the movie. 
And so in 1974, television had become very strong. It was looking for content, and it could now show the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, for free. And so they started showing in 1974, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, many stations start showing It's a Wonderful Life dozens of times, over and over and over. It was free content. We had just come through the 60s. Vietnam, all the civil rights, the assassination of a president and leaders. And many people were asking, what's it all about? Is there any meaning? And then we're seeing this movie, It's a Wonderful Life. And the popularity catches on and it grows. And now it's considered the most inspirational movie ever made. The idea, the story, actually goes back to a man named um, Philip Stern. Philip Stern, in 1943, wrote what he considered kind of a Christmas card. It was a short story, and it contained the elements of It's a Wonderful Life. He wrote this short story and mailed it to all of his family and friends, and it was RKO, a movie studio, that picked up on this, and they thought it was a great idea, a great storyline, And so they, in the end, bought the rights for $10,000. They hired three screenwriters to kind of flesh it out and make it into a story, but it just went nowhere. So finally, it was Frank Capra. If you're a movie buff, you know in the 30s and 40s, number one director in all of Hollywood. Frank Capra, here's the story, and he pays RKO $10,000 for the rights, and now he starts to develop the story. Frank Capra was a man of faith and a man of great values. And Frank Capra said he wanted to make the movie so that every man, woman, and child in America would know that God loves them and that He loves them. And the only way to salvation and peace is to love one another. That was the driving force behind this movie, It's a Wonderful Life. He started developing it, and he had to, of course, have a star for George Bailey, and he thought of Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart had been acting. World War II came along. He enlisted. He became a pilot. He flew combat missions, and now he was a general, and Jimmy Stewart came back home, this hero. He had no contract, no work plans. Frank Capra called him up and said, Jimmy, I'm working on a movie. And it's a movie about a man who who wants to take his own life because he is, he's lost all hope. And things are so bad, and he has so much to be down about, and he's afraid, and it's a dark night of his own soul. And, and in the end, he winds up meeting his guardian angel named Clarence, and Clarence can't fly because he doesn't have wings, but he jumps into a river, and, you know, the more I tell you about this, this is the dumbest story I've ever come up with. And Jimmy Stewart said, wait a minute. You're telling me you want me to play the part of some guy who wants to take his own life, but he's going to meet an angel named Clarence who doesn't have any wings. If that's the storyline, I'm all in. Let's start. And with that encouragement, Frank Capra continued on and they created the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. 
And I got to tell you, as I was back watching the show, preparing for this series, the scene that jumped out at me was a scene when George Bailey is in a bar and he's overwhelmed with fear. The story goes over 28 years. And you remember when he was a young man, the beginning of the movie, it turns out that he had all these high hopes. He wanted to travel. He was going to live. But then his father died. And he had to take over the family business, the, the building and loan. And then he got married, had a couple kids, never left that little town, lived in the same home. It's kind of funny how life never works out the way you plan. Things always happen along the way. For George, it didn't work out the way he planned. And then through his Uncle Billy, well, he lost $8,000 for a deposit. And now without that $8,000, the books were going to come up short and they were going to be audited and they would think that, that George had stolen the money and he would be convicted of embezzlement and he'd be going to jail and all these things were out there and he couldn't deal with it. He couldn't control it. And you see him sitting here at this bar and he is so distraught and he finally says, Oh God, Father in heaven, if you're listening, if you're there, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope. Show me the way. As I saw that scene, I couldn't help but think, at some time or another in our lives, every one of us has prayed that prayer. Everybody's prayed that prayer at some time. Father in heaven, if you're listening, if you're there, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope. Show me the way. This Advent... I hope that you and I are able to confront our fears and we will hear an angel say, don't be afraid for your prayer is heard. It is a wonderful life. It's what I'm going to want us to think about for these next Sundays and services. And today as we start, I just have one thing I want to say. And that simply is, Prepare your heart so that you can hear God speak. Because I'm convinced that if you and I do pray, our prayer is heard. But God may answer your prayer very different from what you're asking for. May be different from what you're hoping to hear. But I do believe that God answers. And God's love and He cares. But who would ever expect a baby to be born in Bethlehem? Who would expect Zachariah and Elizabeth to have a baby in their old age? Who would expect to meet your guardian angel acting like he's drowning in the river? God answers prayers in ways you don't expect. That's what the, book, the movie It's a Wonderful Life is really all about. 
When they asked Jimmy Stewart, what's your favorite scene in the movie? He said, it's the scene where he gets to meet Clarence, his guardian angel. You remember the scene? I mean, he's had this prayer, this heartfelt prayer, and then he gets into a fight and gets his jaw busted. And he runs out and he runs to the bridge and he's thinking about jumping off into the cold, icy waters below. But God has already sent Clarence, his guardian angel, there to be there. And when Clarence sees what's about to happen, he jumps into the river, causing George to jump into the river, not to take his life, but to try to save this other guy who looks like he's drowning. And he gets him out, and they're now in a little shed, drinking coffee and warming up. And and Clarence says, well, I'm your guardian angel. What? Yeah, I saved your life. You saved my life. Yes, I, I jumped in the river so that you would jump in and save me rather than taking your life. I saved your life. Oh. They start talking a little bit about it. And yes, he's an angel second class. That means he hadn't done enough good things to get his wings. And finally, George Bailey says, you know, if you are my guardian angel, I'd believe it. I would get an angel that looks just like you. Well, Jimmy Stewart said that, that was his favorite scene. And you remember what happens. He says to the angel, I wish I'd never been born. I wonder how many of us have said that. I wish I'd never been born. And Clarence said, okay. And suddenly he's able to see the world and all what the world would have been if he hadn't been born. And once he sees what the world would have been like if he hadn't been born, he comes to discover it really is a wonderful life. It's not the way he would have expected God to answer his prayer. But answer his prayer, God did. Don't be afraid, for your prayer is heard. You have to prepare your heart so that you can hear in ways you don't expect. Because I believe God speaks, but we miss his love. You know, for Thanksgiving, Marsh and I went up to Colorado for a few days. And, of course, we spent Thanksgiving with our daughter Kelly and her husband Andy and their four children, our four grandchildren. But when we first landed on the very first day, it turned out to be our grandson Luke's 13th birthday. He's our oldest grandchild. It was his 13th birthday. Couldn't believe it. And we wanted to celebrate, and so we met Luke and his mom Kelly and the two of us. We just went out for a lunch. He had a big party that afternoon he was going to with his friends. But we met for lunch, and, and I just got to tell you, my grandson Luke is an amazing young man. I mean, he's such a kid of faith. He is kind. He is smart. I mean, he makes not just only straight A's. He's an advanced placement in all of his classes, and he loves to read. I mean, he truly is a brilliant young man. Well, we'd brought him a gift, and Marsh and I had a card, and each of us signed the card and telling him how much we loved him, how we're proud of him, how he's a wonderful grandson. Each of us wrote what we wanted to say to him. So we met for lunch, had our card. We gave him the present, gave him the card. He opened the card. He only looked at it for just a moment, closed it up and handed it to his mother. And I thought, you didn't take time to read that card. And then he said, I can't read it. What? It was in cursive. 
I forgot that years ago they stopped teaching cursive in school. You have computers, you have iPads, they don't teach cursive anymore. We had written out exactly how much love we had and how proud, all in cursive. He couldn't read it. He had no idea the message. So his mother had to finally read it for him. We got to talking about that. That afternoon, for his birthday party, he was getting with eight other boys, the nine of them. They were going to this uh, um, house, and it called an escape room. I've never heard of this before. And he started telling me, we have some here in Oklahoma City, escape room. It's a house that'll be themed. And you go into a room and you start getting clues with a team. And it tells you the next clue and the next clue, a certain amount of time for you to be able to figure out how to get out of the room. It's been locked up for you. But if you find all the right clues and you figure it out, you can escape. Well, he was going with these nine boys. The nine of them were going to do this escape room. And that afternoon, some of the clues were in cursive. Out of the nine boys, only one could read some cursive. And since one could read some, it actually was enough to figure out the clues and they managed to escape. But it became very clear. You don't read cursive. And as we're sitting there talking, I said, Luke, I hate to tell you this, but you just became a sermon illustration. (laughs) I said, you think about it. We are trying to tell you how proud we were of you and how much we loved you. And you couldn't read it. You didn't get the message. And I think of how often God's trying to tell us he loves us. Trying to give us the guidance we need. And we can't read it. We don't understand it. We miss it. Advent is about preparing your heart to hear God speak in ways that you may not expect. When Philip Brooks came home back in 1868 and 65, wrote the poem in 1868, he then turned to his organist, Louis Redner, and said, could you have this ready by Christmas Day for worship? Could you come up with a tune to put with these words? Well, Lewis Redner was a great musician and certainly wanted to help the church. And he went to work so hard trying to write a tune, could not come up with anything that worked. He went to bed on Christmas Eve and he knew that he was a failure. But while he slept that night, he heard angels singing. And it sounded so beautiful, he got up and he wrote down the score and then went back to bed. The next morning he got up and he looked what he had written down. And the thought occurred to him, I wonder if this tune would go with these words. And they fit perfectly. And Lewis Redner had found the music to sing O Little Town of Bethlehem by angels singing to him in his dream. It's not what he would have expected. It's not how he would have expected to hear. It would be a little more than 70 years later after it was first sung there in 1868 that Winston Churchill would come to be with FDR for Christmas. After that Christmas Eve and lighting the lights, that Christmas morning, they went to church together. And that morning, the song that they were singing in church was O Little Town of Bethlehem. They had not heard that song in England yet, but Winston Churchill loved it. And those who were there said he sang lustily. 
even though he sang off tune. But he loved the message. I can see these two leaders sitting there facing a world of war, all of the darkness, all of the fears. They needed to hear a message. Yet in the dark street shineth an everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. This Advent, we will confront our fears and find hope. Because I believe we'll hear an angel say, Don't be afraid, for your prayer has been heard. It really is a wonderful life because a baby is born. It's in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.